Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello everyone and welcome to Family Stories. This is our Sunday morning series in which James Holland and I share your family's wartime stories with listeners everywhere. Most history is written from the point of view of the generals and the politicians. But the thing about the Second World War is that it touched the lives of millions of people in every corner of the globe. It was a time when ordinary people did extraordinary things. Here are some of your stories. I hope you enjoy them. Our first comes from Mark Turner, whose grandfather Stan O'Donovan was in the Merchant Navy. I'll let Mark tell it with a little help from Stan himself. Mark says, I love the show and hearing about some of the more unknown aspects of the Second World War. I thought I would try and get a bit more naval content onto the pod and share with you an episode from my grandfather, Stan O'Donovan's service in the Merchant Navy, and in particular his experiences when he sailed to Molotov and Archangel on the Empire Nigel. He went as part of a convoy which departed on the 15th of November 1943, only six days after his 18th birthday. Stan ran away from home and his job at a local shipyard in 1939 at the age of 14. He served throughout the Second World War, travelling all over the world, including to Canada, the United States, South America, India, Malta and Italy. I'm really lucky that he was interviewed for a local talking newspaper service in the early 1990s and I've attached a short extract from the original audio file about his time in Russia. He can set the scene as to just how harsh it was far better than I ever could. Regards, Mark Turner. And they start to unload the cases of ammunition and shells and these guns and all that, loading them into the ship. These tanks come on, the, on flat rail cars and they got them, put them on the deck and worked them down. That's so they wouldn't shift during heavy weather. And then this furniture van come through the dock gates and all the lads were saying we know where we're going now and out through the back of this van we shot woolen rugs jack boots duffel coats all a lot we're going on the russian run the dreaded russian run so we goes go through the saloon and we're all kitted out with this gear now i'll tell you what we had to wear when we went ashore in russia you wear your own underpants, you got long johns in your trousers, you got white sea boat socks, black sea boat socks, jack boots up around, you got your own vest, then you got these string vests, then you got an army driving coat. There was a leather coat with no sleeves in what the drivers in the army used. Then you got the duffel coat. And it had a hood that come over the top of your head. You put a balaclava on, you put the hood over the top and it only had slits for your eyes, your nose and your mouth. And then you got your woolen mittens and then fair mittens. And the duffel coats had elastic bands on the sleeves. 
that pulled over these gloves. Man, when you walked ashore, you walked like a penguin. Your arms out in that, you could hardly move in it. But we went in this. But as usual, we loaded it all, sailed out, same procedure, up the coast, round the Lockyerwee, come out of there, shepherded again in the convoys, and started up the north, Russia the dreaded. So as we passed Iceland, a lot of more destroyers come out in the cruiser. I forget the name of the cruiser, but they joined us. Now, the best part of this was, it was cold ice and that, but it was in the winter, and in the winter, it's dark. So we knew we wouldn't get trouble with planes so much. It was mostly submarines. But we goes up, and when we get up near Norway and that, then it started, the ice and that. And all the sailors, mates, all the lot, were all at shipping hammers, all had to go out. Anybody that was doing all the work used to go out and have to chip the ice off, the rigging and the rails and all that. That was freezing when the spray come over. Because if you get too much ice on, you'll turn over. So we start to go up there. Well, I think we lost three ships on the way up. That we were lucky. So we go round. Uh, we come abreast of Mermansk. Some of the ships went into Mermansk, and we went on a bit, and we turned into the White Sea, right at the top of Russia. As near as the North Pole you can get. So we goes into the White Sea, and we went to a place what they just built, and they called it Molotov, after the Russian uh, foreign minister. We went in there, and it was nothing. No derricks, no things. It was just like a wooden stock of it. Like the cowboys and Indians have. We went there, and the, uh, the Russians come, and uh, they were all women, the duckers. No men. And the mate was assigned an interpreter. She spoke English and Russian, because the mate is in charge of the unloading and loading of the ship. He's got to see that the ship is evenly loaded and unloaded evenly, so there's no uh, way it can sink of that. Now, every time he had to go on the quay to look at his waterline and all that, and then tap to one, they used to have two armed guards on the gangplank. Tommy guns that didn't like us. We were fighting for them, risking our lives to fetch their stuff up, and they still didn't like us. Well, anyway, we found out there was an intruders club in this wooden uh, town, what they called Molotov. So all the lads goes ashore, and we go to this place, and they had a dance. Well, I couldn't dance; I had two left feet. So we sat something, we were supping vodka, the real vodka. Take the top of your head off. Anyway, the lads come back and they said, Bah, these women, they stink. So there was one the next night. So to get to these, you have to get a horse and sleigh. So we goes. Now when we goes in, all the lads that was dancing had bars of soap to give to the Russian women to wash themselves because they stunk that much. Now I give her, alas, an apple and she didn't know what it was. She'd never seen a one in her life. So we unloaded and we, we found out why we had the Jumbo Derrick. We were there to unload any ship that had every cargo and couldn't use their own derricks. So we unloaded a couple 
Then we had to go across to Archangel, another port on the other side of the White Sea. We set out sail, but we were trapped in the ice and uh, the rivets in the tween decks. It squeezes the ice and the rivets come out like machine gun bullets out in the tween decks. So the mate and the captain and all them went down to inspect and they reported and the report come back, we had to make our way up. We were supposed to stay up there six months. Had been round the twist up there six months. So we comes out of the White Sea and uh, into Mermansk. So as we goes into Mermansk, the captain said, Hello, what's all these in here? There was the King George V, the biggest battleship in the English Navy, the cruisers and the destroyer, the whole fleet. He said, there's somewhat off here. He said, I don't know what it is, but they're off. So that was the first time I ever got mail away from home, abroad. They had fetched it up. So we set off. It was two days before Christmas. I always remember it. And we just set off. And a Christmas morning we were saying, Ah, titler, we'll have a lie in. Six o'clock the alarm bells went. Well, you never seen anybody get out the bed so fast. So I gets out of the bed. And the order come to the captain and the convoy to turn up farther up north, right round the top of Bear Island. We could have stepped over the side under the ice of the North Pole. Freeze? Oh, freeze, you didn't know about it. You could carry a bucket of water from the galley to the cabin amidships, and it was froze when you got there. So we turned up round the top of Bear Island, and the next day the skipper come. He said, we're going to break the room out. The King George V and squadron have sunk the Shanos. Now there was a convoy coming up from England, we were coming down, and the Shanos had come out the Norwegian fjords and was going to sink us all, as they thought, but they didn't expect uh, the shadow that was shattering us all, and they sunk it. We were happy. Anyway, we comes down again, losing ships and that, but as it, as it was, it was the window. It come light at 11 o'clock in the morning and went dark again at 2 o'clock. There was very little daylight. Well, in the summer, they call it the land of the midnight sun. It's always so light, but I was glad it was winter, although it was cold. This one comes from Rob Largan, MP for High Peak. He has a story about his grandfather, but also his uncle, who was based in post-war Berlin. Rob says, I'm writing as I love your family story section and wanted to share some of mine. My granddad, Matthew Largan, was conscripted into the army in July 1943. Initially, he was posted to the 4th Battalion of the East Lancashire Regiment, and then, after several months, was transferred to the Royal Army Service Corps. He was much older than the other recruits, being twice the age of most of them, which earned him the nickname Grandad, but he was popular because he didn't smoke and shared out his cigarette allowance. He took part in the bloody Battle for Caen in Normandy, and he was with 30 Corps at Market Garden, all the way up to Nijmegen. At the end of the war, he finished up in Bremen, and was then moved to Hamburg. At night, 
He used to leave food for the famished German civilians at the entrance to the cellars, where they were living because Hamburg had been heavily bombed by Bomber Command. His son, my uncle Matt, was called up for his national service in 1954, and on completing his initial six weeks training, he was posted to the Manchester Regiment's band. In July 1955, when he was stationed in Berlin, the band organised a day out to a lake near the barracks. He must have been a good swimmer because he was the last into the water, but first to reach the far side of the lake, about 400 metres away. What nobody told him was that the boys in the middle of the lake marked the boundary between the British and the Russian zones. The East German police fired upon him and captured him, taking him to be interrogated by Russian military intelligence officers. Fortunately, some Russian leaders were visiting Berlin at the time, and as a gesture of goodwill, the Russians released my uncle at the Brandenburg Gate to British military intelligence. While he was in the hands of the Russians, he overheard them interrogating an American in the next room, and as a result, he was able to tell American military intelligence to arrange a further swap. Keep up the great work, Rob. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This one's from Stefan Brake, one of our independent company members heading the Dubai Corps. This story is a little unconventional for this podcast because my father, Erhard Brake, was on the wrong side, for some of the time at least. It wasn't entirely his fault perhaps as he was born in Yugoslavia, in what is now Slovenia, on the border with Austria. Erhard's family didn't have much. He was a simple country boy whose family would cross the border into Austria to earn shillings working the fields. Like everyone around him, he spoke a mixture of Slovene and German, which was a legacy of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so they probably felt as much Austrian as they did Yugoslav. 
They probably had more in common with Catholic Austria than their Muslim countrymen in the southern Yugoslav states, a country which was barely in its 23rd year when the war started. Yugoslavia capitulated quickly to the Germans. My father and grandfather were there to see Hitler visit Maribor in 1941 and utter those chilling words, Mach dieses Land immer Deutsch, make these lands German again. And as a teenager, he was probably influenced by it all. We will never know the reason why Erhardt joined the German army in 1943. His family didn't have much food and the German army paid him and gave him warm accommodation and a uniform. But we never did ask him the true reason why he joined. He said he was conscripted, but he may have volunteered. And by December 1943, he was near Bari in Italy, firing a huge gun in the direction of the British and the Americans. Even the artillery have to take a break, and on one of those occasions, Earhart stepped away to relieve himself and returned to find there had been a direct hit on his position. This was perhaps a true measure of my father's loyalty to the German army as he conducted his own strategic retreat. He soon met an Italian priest who, once he learned Earhart was Yugoslav, told him he needed to get out of his German uniform and change into the civilian clothes that the priest gave him. He took off his dog tag and hid in the church cellar. Pretty soon the English arrived and Erhardt came out for hiding. Despite speaking no English, Erhardt somehow explained he was a Yugoslav and of course the Yugoslavs were on our side. Those kind English gentlemen never stopped to wonder what a Slav was doing in southern Italy but they gave him the opportunity to make tea and manage the laundry for them. He made tea with great vigour for five years until he was demobbed. At this point and with the war over, Erhardt was asked by the army if he wanted to return to Yugoslavia. He said no thank you and took up the offer to travel to England. The English were friendly and they drank lots of tea, but Earhart couldn't understand why some of the English kept blinking with one eye. He thought it was an hereditary condition until it turned out to be a standard Cockney gesture for hello. Earhart certainly didn't want to return to a war-torn Civil War Yugoslavia, having been in the German army, which the partisans would know. His father, Stefan Bregg, was a member of the Domobranci, the Slovenian Home Guard, who were anti-partisan, anti-communist and, most importantly, pro-Nazi. Erhardt's fate would have been the same as his father's, leaving him in one of the many mass graves that were found in Slovenia in the early 90s. These killings were instigated by Tito's Communist Party, with many of the victims handed over by Harold Macmillan and with Churchill's blessing in the drive to keep Yugoslavia independent of the Soviets. So, in 1948, Erhardt took the journey to London with a medal for his service in the British Army. Before leaving, he had met his future wife, Maria Ciani, in a small village in northeast Italy, which he always claimed he had liberated. The two met when he played the accordion in exchange for drinks, and they promised undying love to each other. When Earhart arrived in London, he began to write to Maria in her village, and asked her to join him in London as his wife. Maria was barely twenty, and she sought the advice of the village priest, who said, There is nothing for you to stay for here. We are starving, there's no food, no jobs. You should go. Maria had never travelled further than the local town, but now she took the train across Italy into France, changed from Gare de Lyon to Gare du Nord in Paris, and then took the ferry boat across to Dover. She spoke only Italian, and carried in her hand her future husband's address in London. My father was demobbed by now and working in a handbag factory. When he returned from work one day to his rented digs, he found his Austrian landlady wouldn't let him in. She said, "'There's a woman in your room. She's your future wife.' You go get married. You go stay somewhere else before you can enter this house. That woman, Auntie Rosa, would become a close family friend and Erhard and Maria were swiftly married in Kilburn, North London. In 1953, Erhard contracted TB twice, followed by meningitis, which nearly took all his hearing. He was a hard-working, loving father 
who wasn't able to return to communist Yugoslavia until 1961, when he finally thought it was safe to go back and see his family. He lived in England for the next 50 years until he passed in 2004. He was eternally grateful to the Italian priest and the English soldiers who essentially saved him from the POW camp and almost certain death. This isn't a hero's story. Much of armed conflict is like this. His time for heroics was battling TB and meningitis and living with virtually no hearing. In modern language, you would call him a political refugee, but he wouldn't understand what the fuss was all about and he'd eat his spicy sausage and drink his slivovice, saying cheers. Nazdravia. And this one is from Philip Woods. And Philip says, Love the podcast, chaps. Jolly good show. Well, thank you, Philip. My grandfather, Richard Dick Billington, volunteered in June 1939 and served in the Royal Navy on the minesweeper HMS Pangbourne. He also served on the anti-aircraft ship HMS Sandown until his discharge in November 1945. Unfortunately, he passed away in 1984, when I was nine, but I have many memories of him telling me about his war experiences, both the fanciful, he claimed he had a pet dolphin that followed his ship around, and the poignant. He came from Norwich, and he used to tell me that the footplate of the gun he manned was stamped with Bolton and Poole, Norwich, so he was always reminded of home every time he stepped up to fight. This is an account, he wrote, of his time at Dunkirk. Twenty years from now, you'll be proud to say I was there, our Captain Commander Douglas Watson said to us in a pep talk. HMS Pangborn was a minesweeper, in fact, a Smoky Joe, so nicknamed because we were the last ships of the fleet still burning coal. We were operating out of North Shields when sailing orders came for us to proceed south, first port of call being Harwich, where we stored up with loads of bread and corned beef and hastily made long ladders. Sailing further south, we crossed the English Channel, arriving late in the afternoon at Dunkirk, a Dunkirk whose dockside was blazing like some huge torch. Nosing alongside the mole, we embarked some 200 troops, hungry, tired and unshaven men, who still had spirit enough to raise a cheer as we helped them aboard. Later, under fire from German guns, we moved to one of the jetties inside the harbour. It was here that we took on board many wounded cases, these men being laid side by side on the quarterdeck, while the walking wounded found room where they could. Troops were everywhere, crews' messes, officers' cabins, bathrooms, round the funnel, and even the gun's platform had its full quota of escaping soldiers. It was dark when we steamed out of harbour, and once outside we were supposed to take our course home by lighted boys. Our captain didn't know these had been bombed, and he mistook a ship's light for one of the boys, and we ran aground on a sandbank. For two hours we were stuck, until the tide started running, and then we were able to proceed to Ramsgate, where we disembarked our troops. Many of those exhausted soldiers hadn't realised we'd been aground, and one soldier tucked up in a corner of the ship slept so well that he found himself coming back to Dunkirk with us. When we got back to Dunkirk, we found the SS Clan McAllister at anchor off the beaches, with German gunners ranged on her. Under heavy fire, our captain took Pangborn alongside, and we rescued the captain and crew. By the time we left, her stern was on fire, with a chance that her ammunition might go up at any minute. During the second trip, we got the troops aboard by means of our motorboat and whaler, making visits to and from the beaches. 
Now the German Stukas concentrated their dive-bombing attacks on our ship. One after the other they peeled off and only a miracle saved us from a direct hit. But the near misses did a lot of damage to our ship, as well as killing and wounding several of our crew. Soldiers, who only a short time ago were rescued from the beaches, now lay dead on our decks. We had no doctor on board, and some of these men died pitiful deaths. The day before, I'd been talking to one of my pals, Bill Mather, of St Helens, about the grimness of the situation. Bill kept stressing the fact that these boys must be got home safely from the beaches. Now Bill was dead, killed in action. His parents, though, can be proud of him. It was a whole lot of Bill Mathers, with no thought for themselves, that made this evacuation so successful. With our degaussing gear wrecked, and more than a hundred holes in our hull, the captain gave the order to weigh anchor. Engineers plugged the holes with chips of wood, and we journeyed home as best we could. On the way home, we came across the paddle steamer, Gracie Fields. She'd been hit by bombs in the engine room. We tried to tow her, but after an hour she had to be abandoned, and she soon floundered and sank. Perhaps Miss Gracie Fields wondered what became of the boat that was named for her. Well, there it is, Gracie. I'm so sorry we couldn't have brought her right home. Magnetic mines slowed our journey, and we had to wait until a channel was cleared for us before entering Dover Harbour. Rapid, improvised repairs were done during our short stay in Dover Harbour. Then we made our final trip back to Dunkirk. This time we got our troops safely on board, and dawn found us halfway across the channel. That dawn revealed one of the strangest armadas ever put out to sea. There were motorboats, sailing craft, trawlers, destroyers, and yes, even rowing boats being towed. Phil continues. My grandfather was never one to shy away from talking about his war experiences. I'm just sorry that I didn't get more time with him to ask him all the questions I have now. Thankfully, you gents are filling some of those gaps. Tally-ho, Phil Woods. OK, this is from Lindsay Gordon, Edinburgh. Hi guys. First, the obligatory tithe. We absolutely love the pod. Here's a tale about my late mother, a teen during the war, and her family's befriending of Basil Bunting, the modernist poet. Basil Bunting was raised a Quaker and was a conscientious objector during the Great War. During the Second World War, however, he enlisted in the RAF. In the 1930s, he wrote Ode 34, written no doubt with an eye to the approaching storm. The short poem carries a sense of doom an imagined writer describes an apocalyptic world where cities lie ruined. These tracings from a world that's dead. Yet he is hopeful that somehow he may live on through his words, and this unread memento be the only lasting part of me. Bunting himself did live on, going on to serve in British military intelligence in Persia as a translator, and in Italy as an intelligence officer. Earlier in the war, however, he worked off the Scottish coast on a motor schooner called the Golden Hind, which had been requisitioned as a barrage balloon vessel. It was hard and dangerous work. He wrote of being lifted from the water by a death charge dropped by a German plane, during a hard easterly gale, and the crew, all overage for other service except two frightened boys, who had to keep the pumps going while the boat was pumped out by men up to their waist in water in the narrow bilge. His living conditions whilst ashore provided little respite. I have been without a change of linen, without a bath, sleeping in a horrible smell, in an unventilated room, shaving out in the street from a bucket, scrubbing floors without soap, polishing brass without metal polish, washing dirty dishes in cold water. 
He found solace, however, in the friendship of locals. My mother's cousin, Jean, volunteered at the Flying Angel mission to Seaman and brought him into the extended family circle. He visited the family for companionship and suppers, often so tired that he fell asleep at the table. At 14 years old, my mother was already working as a clerk at the Levin Gas Company. With plenty of free time and access to an old Remington typewriter, she offered to type up manuscripts for him, and the friendship was sealed. Ode 34 was republished in Poetry magazine in 1941, dedicated to Violet with pre-war poems. Bunting is said to have been pleased about the publication, mainly because Violet would see her name in print. Her name became forever part of the poem's title. In her later years, my mother was absolutely delighted to learn that through her friendship with a tired airman during wartime, she had earned herself a tiny bit of immortality as a footnote to literary history. At 14, she was, however, content to be rewarded with exotic used postage stamps that Bunting procured for her from his overseas literary friends. That's it for this week. If you'd like your family stories considered for the show, please email them to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com clearly marking the subject of the email family stories. You can always post them on the Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you for listening. <laughs>